In part two of our conversation, we discuss his relationship with former Premier Ed Stelmack, the 06 and 11 PC party leadership races, and his competitive friendship with former Premier Allison Redford. Future episodes will include conversations with former NDP leader Ray Martin, former Minister of Finance Lyle Oberg, former MLA and Edmonton City Councillor Karen Lipovici, as well as former Health and Finance Minister Iris Evans. Were you still caught off guard being an MLA compared to being a staffer? Like you thought you knew the role? No, that, that, that wasn't the It's surprising that wasn't the challenge. I mean, I came in there. I, you know, you get the call. I think it was, it was March 10th from the premier saying you're going to cabinet. It's culture and community spirit. You hang up the phone and you go, what does that mean? And then, you know, the next day, You've got an office and a cell phone, and that's all you've got. Luckily, Dave Allen, my old friend who had worked in Mazinkowski's office when I was there, and a good friend of family, um, suggested that I hire Don's daughter-in-law, Sherry Mazinkowski. And so she had been on a legit, but she'd been on maternity or raising kids for eight years, and she was coming back. So I knew I had somebody that was experienced in my office. And then I found another lady, my scheduling assistant, who with 10 years experience, Heather Malakoff, who was phenomenal. But I had, you know, you have an, at the time as an EA, now a chief of staff, you have a, uh, a, um, a deputy minister and you have a, a, an ops, um, a communications officer. Well, my chief of staff, it was an assistant deputy minister out of advanced ed, first time as a, as a, as a, as a chief. My EA, great guy with a party, Matt Stefan, but had never been an EA. And my communications person had never been a communications person. So I spent a lot of time helping them with their roles instead of working on me and my roles. I brought in... Um, Jock Osler to help with with that, and um, and we we changed how things were done a little differently. At first, you're given your chief of staff by the premier, and you just accept it. Later on, you know you you have good staff, and they'll take them because they need another minister. So I I learned to pick my own people, and um, we had good camaraderie, but. Um, I had been a staffer, I would have been, I would have been a lot slower to get up to speed to be able to do my job. Um, let alone, because if you if your staff don't know with direction what you want, what you're looking for, what you're trying to achieve, then you'll never get there. You get elected as an MLA and you become a minister. Can you just talk us through the experience. Well, two of that? weeks before. Um, the end of the campaign, Dave Allen and I sit in my campaign office and he, he suggested that chances are you will probably end up in cabinet. And these are the reasons being, um, large riding, you, you, you had the, one of the largest events. You've 
got good polling in their riding, you're visible minority, blah, blah, blah. Um, when, but when you get there, you're kind of left because you don't get sworn in as an MLA until like two weeks after you're sworn in as a minister. You've already met your department. You already got meetings going on before you even have your orientation session as an MLA. So it's for people who haven't been in politics, it's pretty overwhelming because not only you got to learn your constituents, the ropes, where your office is, where the washroom is, you got a department and then you've got to now learn your file. And, and you know, the key people in the department and where the platforms are. And, you know, as it happened to me, I got my phone in my office. I'm sitting there with no furniture except a chair. And I get a call from the Cal or from the Edmonton Journal and you're on your own. Go to it. Did you say you picked your own staff off the bat or did no, the, no. the premier's office? No, it yeah. was it was probably three years in before I got to pick my own staff or two years in. You had to earn that right. right. What's the leadership style of Stomach? And uh, how did he manage the minister's offices? Was it very centralized or were you did he want to see how you could uh, prove yourself? I think the, the latter. I mean, I think at first, new government, um, he, you know, he'd been premier for a few months before the election. Um, so some of those people was more familiar with. Um, you know, I had a mandate and then we had a quiet discussion and I said, you know, minister, there's, there's, I, I realize that you've given me lottery money. And so that will create immense interest in my colleagues two minutes after we have this conversation. And, um, but, you know, culture, we hadn't had a dedicated minister of culture since Mary LeMessurier, which was 23 years prior, uh, part of the Lougheed administration. And I said, you know, Churchill said, culture is what we fight for. It's who we are as people, what we represent as our society. That's what we fight for. I knew that in most countries, China, Russia, France, Spain, the minister of culture is high, more highly regarded than a minister of finance. But we're, we've got a conservative group of people. But he said he wanted to put Alberta on the map and take every opportunity I could to convey that message within Alberta and outside of Alberta. Now, um, as I've known uh, you and about you and picked up, you're, you're a blunt guy. You call it as it is famously uh, before. Um, how, do you, how did you balance wanting to be plain spoken with the fact that there's an expectation to be, you know, diplomatic or, or tactful or you have to say nice things to a lot of people or you have more problems? I may be blunt. But one thing is I'm professional and I'm a gentleman. And, you know, um, there was never going to be a Trumpisms coming out of my mouth. And, and you're part of a team. So you have to have discipline. You can be a drill sergeant, but you're still at the end. you got to follow a chain of command. And um, I had no problem doing it for the premier. I just said, I'll tell you when there's a bullet coming your way and I'll jump in front of it. You're never going to have problems because of me. 
and we'll we'll do that. I checked in with him every time I had an initiative, and I can't remember when it was, six months, eight months into it. He says, don't bother, you're good. Keep on doing what you're doing. And that would be whenever we'd meet, you know, how, you know, can we bring the Junos into it? Can we, can we bring the Grey Cup? Can we can we showcase something in Montreal, the theater school, and let everybody know that 40% of those donors come from Alberta or, in, you know, in, in Winnipeg? A lot of different things. Going to England and being able to talk to people, academics, about, about climate change because they're not threatened by a culture minister, but... You know, it would be an acrimonious debate if it's a, with the with the the uh, with the um, with a minister of uh, energy or environment or what have yeah. you. Um, now, I started during I started staffing during Stelmax um, during your term, um, and Stel you know Premier Stelmac stepped down at the beginning of eleven or at least formally. And by the end of the 11, you had a new leader. Um, what was that like as it started to, I don't know, unravel or as the mood shifted, like, you know, unemployment went up, the economy slowed down. Talk about that from internally. What, what did it feel like? Other caucus colleagues probably weren't going to the premier to check in and say, I'll take a bullet. They wanted him to take the bullet. Yeah. And, and, I didn't know at the time who was behind it, how, what got pushed to make him resign. I think at the time it was some people in Calgary were fingered. And I think maybe he and some of his people even thought that I might've been part of that, but I, I certainly wasn't, wasn't privy to the discussion. We, we were in a position where we were just starting to make headway and start to move forward where we look like we're going to have, you know, um, a small deficit of $400 million a year later um, because all the bad things that happened in 08 caught up to us in 09 as a government, and we were starting to see that things turn. Um, we had some initiatives that were starting to, to make hay, but we, we weren't bad, but... I remember um, I had a conversation with Allison Redford the day before we were sworn in. We didn't know the, the other was going to be in cabinet. And I said, well, this is interesting in 2008. I think we'll be fine in 2012, but I really worry about our government and our party's future in 2016. So on that point, what was your gut telling you? So my kid was telling me, I knew that Allison Redford and I were the two hot young flavors of the month. And she wanted to run. She tried to get me to run twice. I decided I didn't want to run because I, at the end of the day, I decided I didn't want to be premier. And I didn't want to be stuck in Edmonton for another term because you'd probably end up having to win two. And... You know, it was a drive back from Banff and another successful Banff Television Awards and spoke to the groups of uh, all the different human rights commissions. And we had launched Bill 44 and successfully brought that through. And, you know, it seemed like the time. But I, you know, 
it wasn't good for me or my family. And you'd mentioned it before. When I was in Parliament Hill, I was shocked the first year when I saw the Christmas cards because I didn't realize all the guys were married. And I'll just leave it at that. But it takes, it takes a huge toll on families. And even though in Alberta, you're, you don't have as large a distance to travel, but, you know, I spent Monday to Thursday in, in Edmonton away from my family. It, it takes a toll. And just for clarity, for context, you know, I know, Sam, you've got little kids during your term. Like they're not teenagers at the time. They're not fully grown. You've got little kids. Right. So 13 and 11 when um, I decided to pull the plug. I understand that Redford had worked in Ottawa as well. Uh, was part of the federal PCs. Had you guys crossed paths, Stephen, all of that? Like you, you, you've known each other for decades by yeah, the time you Yeah, we knew in each college. other in 1985. She was a Joe Clark person. I was a Mulroney person. Probably for the next 10 years of our lives, if not longer, every political battle, youth or otherwise, provincial or otherwise, used to end up along those lines. Um, she ran against... You know, here's a crazy thing. In 1986, youth convention, two people run for a youth president. Each of them spent over 100 grand. First vice president, Allison Redford, beats Gord Brown, the late Gord Brown, good old pal of mine, who ends up being federal caucus leader. But 100 grand 100 in grand the 80s. Each in 1986. What do you make of that divide uh, on youth politics? Because it doesn't, it's a PC thing. It's not a. It's a PC thing, but I mean, I, I, I think it was a big mistake in throwing out the baby, the bathwater. I understand you want to change culture, but especially now, if you look at the demographics of our country, you've got the first time you've got Gen Z and the millennial. That's anywhere from 15 to 25 that are each of those separate groups are larger than the baby boomers and the Gen Z's the larger of the two. You've got all those people under the age of 25 and you've got no mechanism as a party, any party, to utilize those people when they are bright and unencumbered by family and responsibility. You know, I... I try to explain politics to non-political people, especially the conservatives. Um, and, it, you know, you can keep going back because right now we could go back to PC Wild Rose. We could go back to, Stel uh, sorry, uh, Klein stepping down. Um, but we, we could start there, like Morton, Stelmack, Denning. That was unresolved, right? It wasn't, the party didn't unite after the leadership. And that was the same day that... Um... Dion won the liberal leadership. Like eighth round, I yeah. think. So I was supporting Denny. Um, I wasn't well known in political party circles at all, but through Tom Long, I was involved in the 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 federal leadership United Party two weeks after I moved to, to Alberta. So I got to know some people and I got to sit in the room. And I remember the Dinning people saying, wow, we're, we're going to fix Ed. I said, why is Ed Stelmack going to come over to Dinning when he's, he's uh, going to be number two on both Morton and Dinning ballots? 
he's in. And a couple of guys pissed off, who the hell are you? And what are you thinking? And I said, that's the name of the game, boys. Numbers. And you can't grow your number. If you've already set out in the preferential ballot and you've already picked your guys, what you should have done is you should have said no preferential choice for number two and left it blank. And because you would have been better off for you as, as dinning people having Morton as your number two. That's what you picked. But if you had not picked him and just left it as such, you would have had him as number two and not Stalmack would have enough votes to climb from third. So you're, you know, you're a dinning guy um, and on these leaderships that usually matters later. Do you think being dinning was part of the, the mix as well, being in cabinet that Ed tried to unite the different camps? I think so. Um, but it was also like Ed though, it's, it's all very personal. I knew uh, Dwayne Monier who worked on his camp. Every debate we had that I saw him, I'd always go talk to Ed Marie. Um, I liked them and I mean, again, it goes a lot more back to that day on that golf course, talking about everything in politics and experiences and what you would do and what you thought was right and what you thought was wrong. And, you know, he felt comfortable because I was honest with him. And, um, you know, but a leader's got to know where you're coming from, but they got to know that they can trust you. Do you think Ed was too loyal? Yeah, you know, and the other part is Ron Glenn and I worked together on Parliament Hill. Um, he was in a member's office when I was in the PMO. So I knew him and that was part. Yeah, there will always be questions of that. I think the one part I realized, you know, years later is that those people who thought by royalty we were going to make, you know, Calgary um, face things a little differently and, you know, it was $1.78 billion that we were trying to get in extra royalty money. But what ended up happening is, one, it didn't punish anybody in Calgary. The, the downturn and the job dislocation was in rural Alberta. And the fact was that, um, you know, what, you, what they had planned didn't work. And the $1.78 billion we would have got in royalty we lost two billion in land sales the first year, another billion of some the next year. So it it really never worked out. Um, and I think that wasn't more about being loyalty. I think that's some people had certain influence on him at the time, and you know he had a better history with them than he had with with some of us, and that's where that's where he that's where he went to. Uh, the floor crossing, Rob Anderson and Heather Forsythe cross. Um, I, I can I tell again explaining politics to non-political um, people say politics is war, but I say it's gang war because you're fighting over the same neighborhood. Um, what did you see that coming? Like I know the Wild Rose with with Paul Hinman and the. Not only did I see it coming, I mean, Rob was never a team player, and. Um, he was just one of those guys who was always complaining, always finding what it is for Rob as opposed to what it is for the team, not the pragmatist. Heather was disillusioned, I think, but I didn't know her closely. 
she'd been a cabinet minister on decline and lots of people who were cabinet ministers thought they sh should have been cabinet ministers again. And that's the part of the fight, as you know, behind the scenes. Your minister, everybody wants, that's the, a, a backbencher wants your job. And when you're the premier, every minister wants your job. Did you consider a run for leader when Ed stepped down and it was trying to figure it out? Or? Well, she asked me twice to run. Um, I think she wanted me in the race because two of us were popular. She needed to, us to pull votes from Gary Marr and whoever else would run in there. And, and that would help her. I wasn't a fan of Allison's choice for campaign manager. Um, and I had, after I decided I wasn't going to run, I decided for leader, I decided there's no point in running again uh, for an MLA. If I didn't want to be leader, I didn't want to have to necessarily sit by and watch somebody else go and do something that maybe I didn't believe in. But, um, and I know that doesn't sound like a team player, but I thought, We've got a great riding. There's lots of smart people. Somebody else will come forward. Stephen Harper, former prime minister, was known for letting caucus have it out. And then once the decision was made, everyone's on the same page. Um, that sounds like it was the same with Ed, that externally he wanted everyone to be on the same page. And was there the same type of having it out in caucus or was it more... Um, well, it, yes and no. Um, we wanted to have consensus. I mean, I had Bill 44, our human rights bill, and I'll tell you, we spent probably close to 40% of our entire caucus time in debating of any bill was spent on that bill. We, we did it and we, we came out of it united. We did the right thing. The problem was everybody who was spending their time debating my bill hadn't prepared for their own bill. And I won't cast dispersions, but we had a land use framework bill that came forward that decimated our caucus, that decimated us in the next election where we didn't have a rural seat south of Red Deer. People don't realize how important the land use framework was in driving Wild Rose support and winning rural Alberta. Correct. And, and that, but you know, and, and, and I have a huge amount of respect for Ted, I'm not casting aspersion, but he spent a lot of time helping us get to, you know, parental rights, um, trying to get section three. And, you know, that's the one time that the majority of caucus would have supported that motion, but there was some elements in our caucus that felt that that was going to threaten uh, or allow people to use it as, as a, a motivation for hatred. So the premier stepped in and said, we would, we would just not go with that particular portion. We went with the rest of the bill. Um, it was just one of those things. We spent a lot of time on it, probably way too much time, but it was time that was needed. And, you know, at the end of the day, it was one of the very few times in Alberta history where a cons progressive conservative government went up against the ATA and the school boards and the parent council and won.
usually doesn't happen that way, huh? You know, the Human Rights Commission, how often do you ever hear about that today? Your, you know, the bill at the time was around the topic of free speech as well. And that's, that's a, a defining issue right now. But I think it was seen as an outlier other than, you know, Ezra Levant back then too. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And freedom of speech at the end of the day was only like 3% and, and human sexuality was like 1% of anything that was there. Um, it was procedural stuff and we didn't, have a, we didn't have anybody with a legal background in there. When we brought in a retired federal judge and changed the regulations and tightened it up to be more professional and then it, everything was what it was supposed to be. You talked about door knocking. Um, you're busy in as, a, as an MLA and a minister. Um, there's, it's often tempting to think that if it's not in the media, it's not politically active and getting people worked up. How did you try to stay aware of what was going on, even if it wasn't in the media? It's easy just to read your morning clips and think that, that's One politics. is that uh, I still door knock, even when I was in an election. I still went and knocked people's door. I was still involved in the community. I, because of being Minister of Culture, you're out every community all around the province. Edmonton, Grand Prairie, Lethbridge, you're all over the place. So you get to talk to people and I like visiting. And I like to hear from people what they think and I don't care if it's the, the, the janitor or the taxi driver, everybody's opinion matters to me. Well, everyone's a voter, right? Or could be. It could be if they exercise their franchise. How did cabinet work? I know caucus is the whole team, but cabinet's a bit, is smaller, depending on the the leader. Um, Was it very routine? Was it a robust discussion? How did it work for you? It was a routine. I mean, it was a robust discussion. First, you come in, it's kind of intimidating, right? I mean, you... There's guys who know uh, what they want and they're, they're, they're pushing their, their agenda. And you know that health and education and, you know, infrastructure and those are the items that are going to carry the day. I just found it vastly interesting that as I learned my own portfolio and learned to some of the other ones that, you know, we can, you know, coordinate what we do using ministries working together. I remember we started looking at it for not-for-profits and we realized that there was a billion three that was spent in not-for-profits and there was actually one organization that got funding from six different departments. We needed to start to work together. And um, I found that for the majority of people, that was fine you know, egos aside. Um, but when we made the, the biggest financial decision in our four years, healthcare, six, 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 and five. The five-year plans, the famous five-year plans in healthcare. It was voted on a conference call. And the only time any vote that I remember was made on a conference call was the most expensive one. Not that it would have been any different, I don't think. It was just interesting. 
politics is competitive. You compete to win the nomination. You compete as an MLA, like you said, to get into cabinet. Did you have any mentorship as far as experienced ministers or is it just too competitive and you're too busy? Too competitive, too busy. I think I, um, I, it came competitive because I got, I'm comfortable speaking in public. So media is just starving for anybody in government to speak. I try not to speak on anybody's portfolio, but my own, but they wanted to speak and I was speaking and it, it seemed easy for them. It was easy to me. And that just pissed people off. Politics is very zero sum. Correct. So the more you get, the less someone else gets. And it's, you know this as well, it's everything starts to be seen through the lens of power. If you're not, if you're not careful. If you're careful and you're just trying to keep your head down and do your job, you don't see what's behind you all the time. You had some reasons for not, for deciding not to run again. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? I didn't, you know, the idea of being chauffeur driven and my kids chauffeur driven and you can't go to the pub for a beer. It's not like I have to go to a beer every night, but can't drive your own car. Those are little freedoms that I liked. Um, the other part is the bigger part I saw was we were, we were a party that was headed for a cliff. We at every election, we were deemed to be more arrogant. I think the numbers were like 35% in 2008. By 2012, by the time we had our caucus retreat in, in, um, in, in Jasper, it was 54%. And I know full well, the day you're at 50% or more, they think that you're arrogant and out of touch, they'll vote for anybody. That's how Jack Layton had his swell in support. That's how Bob Ray won in Ontario. And that's how we could lose in Alberta. And I told you, I was worried about 2016. We were in the wrong place. And I supported Doug Horner. I should probably have supported no one because Allison Redford never forgave me and never took a chance to make me pay for that. But in the end of the day, the party itself wasn't going to change. We've been, we became the party of, of special interest groups. And we forgot to be the party of the constituent. And do you, do you have a theory on yeah, why? Because we, we were preoccupied with oil and gas and we had people that were you know, we had strong, smart people in caucus and cabinet, but they, you know, oil and gas was, was everything. Uh, diversification was just lip service. Um, we were going to double down on that. So you would have a meeting as a minister, if something gets oil and gas related, that would trump everything. And, you know, we, we, we were happy that we were overpaying, but we didn't pay attention to what we were spending. In, in health for doctors in 2008, we paid $4 billion out in that budget. This last budget, we paid $5.125 billion, with never anybody explaining to the Alberta public why. 
And then we went and tried to cut them, cut that back without explaining to the Alberta public why. We've got these systemic problems that were there back in 2011. Um, and a lot of my friends are lobbyists. A lot of my friends are government relations people. But they get together and they see the world through their lens. It's not about John Q. Public. Hasn't been for a very long time. And I think that's a prevalent part in not just Alberta, Canadian, North American, but in the Western world. You get a lot of people being disenfranchised on both sides of the political spectrum because people don't pay attention to them and they don't pay attention to the obvious. And the best example possible is in the U.S. because neither Clinton nor his challenger nor Bush nor his challenger nor Obama nor the challenger ever mentioned the word outsourcing or brain drain or movement of or decrease of the of the manufacturing sector i mean that's we just become tone deaf they were more interested in big business and what they had to say than the people who were losing their jobs in ohio and pennsylvania and so on and you know there's 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 similarities in alberta and there's similarities across the country what you said about the the public perception of entitlement, when it flares up, it's often the glass of orange juice. Or when you were not running again, the no meat committee with with how people are paid. It's the small pocketbook stuff that really... And, and, you know, and there's such easy ways to deal with it. I knew my expenses were going to be put up on the, the government website every month. Duh. I knew the expense rules that they're similar across the country. If I'm going to order liquor, I'm going to use it my own credit card. And if I'm expensing a meal, it's got to be business and it's got to be the meal. And um, I wanted to say, I wanted to actually go one step further and say, this is who my meetings are with. This is what I'm doing. Because I said, my constituents want to know what I'm doing with my time and their dollars. I got a huge pushback from the deputy premier back. Who the hell do you think you are? Stop working so hard. You're making us all look bad. Do you think um, expectations have gone up from the public? Yeah, I, they have. And inversely proportionate to what they should be. They expect more out of our public officials, but they, they don't expect the better quality candidates, which is kind of crazy. And I would submit that right across the board, you're seeing a level of incompetence on every level of government right across the country that nobody ever thought possible. But if you look at how you pick your people and the collective skill set that you have in caucus and cabinet, you know it's a perfect storm about to happen. It's, I think COVID has, we talked about that earlier, about how um, leadership and what you saw in, in the 80s um, versus right. now. I mean, I think everybody's scared of their own shadow. And I don't think everybody expects you to be perfect, 
But I don't expect, we don't expect guys, women or men, to be strident and come out and say this with an attitude, like, you know, our federal, uh, federal um, health officer, no, mask, are you stupid? That's a waste of time. And then three months later trying to tell us how we all have to wear them. And, you know, and politicians following that lead and, and you know, you know, in Alberta, just, you know, we just, we just dealt with it. And one thing they don't like in politicians is, is incompetence or ignorance. Um, you know, originally an MLA was just part of the assembly that voted on bills and laws. And now, like you said about being a public speaker, it seems like the main job of an MLA is to be a communicator, whether it be from the government to the public or from their constituency to government. And that's a struggle that with technology and the, the 24-7 presence, people are struggling right. with. It, and funny you should say that because I've said this to Sam, I said, our problems in government started 30, 40 years ago. And it's when you mentioned technology, remember I said we were talking about identify the vote, maybe now use an mm-hmm. iPad before you used a bingo sheet. Well, what hasn't changed in politics? We still have communications departments. We don't have marketing departments, which would incorporate more advertising, public relations. Social media is obviously a component of that. But somehow we still think writing speeches and writing a press release is going to get our message out. A standard PR rather than, um, you know, engaged. It's broadcasting versus, you know, engagement, I yeah, guess. But it's, it's, it's PR from, you know, Ryerson um, journalism from 1970. <laughs> the original Edward Bernays. <laughs> yeah. um, I, it's interesting. I read about Bernays and he's considered the godfather, the originator of public relations, but... He was actually, at least the example I was given was, he didn't think about formal public relations the way you did, just explain the way other people see it. He worked for Ford Motor Company and he didn't sell the features of the Ford. He tried to get the speed limits increased so people could drive the Ford Mustang and have more fun with it. So he was interesting and outside the box thinking. And I think so. The other part is one thing I learned in my my staff had a hard time at first. I said, I don't want a speech written. Just give me some notes about the subject matter. I said, one, you read a speech, you're going to lose people because you don't come across as, as authentic. And, and two, you should know your subject matter over time. And certainly you should know your life story. So you're just telling a story. And when you can tell a story, people can follow along and they notice that you don't have notes and all of a sudden the fact that you're that's out of the ordinary makes you extraordinary when you're really not if you don't do it or if you can do it it makes something seemingly crazy but when you mention that the 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 mix-up of people who actually run with the skill sets that are actually required it's not just personality how did you get along with the opposition um because these are people, after all, that you have to work with. Yeah, I, 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 I believe in working across the aisle. Um, I worked with, gosh, I mean, my biggest critics were um, 
the uh, Liberal member from Calgary Centre, Lori, Lori, um, Lori Blakeman, Edmund. and Rachel Notley. I work with them on things that, you know, community issues, some other things. I'd reach out and, and try to help work with that, have discussions about whatever, knowing that we, we're ideologically opposed, but always remembering we still want to help those people. So we were able to do that and, and stuff that never made the papers, but we're able to get cons consensus on things. I like Brian Mason. I like, I, there's nobody I, I didn't get along with. I got along with Kent Hare. I got along with all of them. Um, and I would, you know, Alison Redford before I fell out of favor when I decided not to support her, she would probably tell you I was probably the most popular guy in our caucus. But I was just a normal guy. I tell you like it is, but I wouldn't lie to you. And I sure as hell won't go behind your back and try to do something underhanded. And I think in politics, your colleagues need to know that. Not just guess at it, but they really need to know that. It's definitely a long game that uh, people lose sight of. Now, uh, sorry, the other one I asked about was the 12 election. So you've decided not to run. Um, the PCs were actually pretty popular in the polls, despite um, up and down of the Wild Rose. But famously, the last weekend, the support disappears. And... In the 12, and I, I was a commentator on Global Calgary for the election. But I saw how we were getting killed. And I could see, you know, from the land use framework days, because I was out in all those different ridings, whether you're in Airdrie or whether you're in Lethbridge or you're in Calgary, there's people that are pissed off. And, um, and we didn't have an answer to it. And Redford was just, you know, she was tough. And that was what got her through the leadership. Her mother passed away. She was stoic, threw it out. And she was the little general, and that people looked at that. But that election, if Hunsberger and Leach hadn't opened their mouths on the Thursday, the PCs would have woke up on that Monday morning in a minority in a in a minority opposition. And mm -hmm. the problem is after that, Redford thought that because she got fifty four percent. That mean that 54% thought she was fantastic and going to do a great job. And she governed like she had 75%. And the rest of it became history. Because any government who forgets the people and looks more at themselves is more important than the people themselves, you're out of touch and your days are numbered. So it wasn't necessarily her. She never got to finish the term. We, we end up having another leadership. Jim Prentice come in, comes in, highly regarded, but again, a little bit elitist. And, um, you know, it's the five killings that he decided. You, you want to say it, look in the mirror. You want to call election a year early. You want to say that we have to have a budget because we're in dire economic circumstances but you defer all the tough spending until the third year. There was, you know, a couple of other things, but. And you, um, you, you know, Randy Dawson, though, you, you know, were you tempted to run for Prentice? Were you tempted, okay. were you calling your friends on Team Prentice? Because he was a federal PC, yeah, right? Yeah, and, you know, they were all 
all of those guys were on the Clark side of the ledger. I had no problem with that. But I, when I decided I was leaving, I wasn't leaving because of a leader. I wasn't going to be leader, then I wasn't going to be. And so it didn't matter if Jim Prentice was a leader or not. I wasn't running. And I think the Redford people in her camp, they had a very concentrated campaign to discredit me. And they try to do that with, Minister Pre with Jim Prentice. And I told him, I said, I don't care what they have to say. I'm not interested. Uh, I said, you're going to have your hands full and look around because I think what you've got now, we had, you've got a C-team comparison to what Stelmack had in his cabinet and you haven't brought any stars into the fold. You have a couple. You, the challenge in that is you have to make shuffles, but you, you make shuffles because something goes awry. It could be somebody's health. It could be whatever, but you don't want to make the shuffle even worse because you can't put somebody better into that role because you don't have somebody better. And you had said a few times while we've chatted that you felt like two terms out, the PCs were in trouble, and then the NDP won in 15. Mm -hmm. Do you think that was a bill coming due? Yeah, it was definitely a bill coming due because we were increasingly more arrogant. Being in power for 41 years, you have a budget where you're running a budget at $40 billion, and by the time Redford's premier, it's almost at $50 billion. I, what kind of conservative government in their right mind can run deficits like that? And now you don't have the Alberta advantage. We're not better off than Saskatchewan or, or BC and, and some other provinces. That's, that's a problem. So for you, what, when you say arrogance, is that... Is that attitude, is that certain, because you know how staffers talk, like, are you a red Tory? Are you a SOCON? Yeah, are you? It, it got nothing to do with either of those is are you listening to the people that elected you? And the um, reason I said I, I was, one of the main reasons I didn't want to stay because the party was, became, the, it, it, was, it was taken over by special interest groups. And the other part is we never apologized to the Alberta voter because we thought because Jim Prentice, you know, flamed out in, a, in an NDB majority and then UCP was new constituted party. We didn't have to apologize for our failings as con progressive conservatives. So we thought we didn't have to do that, but we could just go do whatever we wanted and we'd have a clean slate where we were still carrying that 41 years of sludge. I mean, to your point, change the leader, change the page, just keep going. Right. You know, Brian Mulroney, Kim Campbell, new and different. Well, people see through that. Nothing upsets people more than to be taken for granted or taken for foolish. Going back a little bit, Redford only had support from one MLA, as I yeah, can Art, remember. Art Johnson. So um, what... More on the point of you're not in cabinet, you're in caucus. I mean, it gets wild when nominations start before an election anyways. What was it like in the Redford caucus before that election? Redford caucus, I mean, it was, it was crazy. 
there was kind of denial. They're bringing some new members, and a lot of the senior guys had left, or we were all we were a lot of people were leaving. So you know they got to keep up the momentum because we're going to win another record majority. But you know my case, um, they try to ram Sandra Jansen down the throats of Calgary Northwest, threaten me if I didn't do this or that. So I had my own take on what it was, and I just you know I I was completely disinterested. By that time, I helped on the campaign, helping identify the vote and doing some training for volunteers because I knew I had to do something uh, for the party, um, and I had been on the board. But it was for a few people; they knew they were being challenged, and who was she trying to favor? Um, but nobody liked her. But they knew that she was going to do whatever she wanted. Allison and I knew each other for 30 years prior to us both running for office. Um, it was cordial, got along. Um, when we were in cabinet together, we'd travel. She had a young daughter. I had young kids. She never usually had somebody with her daughter. So, you know, my kids ended up hanging around with her daughter. But... Um, when I decided that I wasn't going to support her, she went out of her way to nail me to the, to the cross. She had people badmouth me to stakeholders in the, my former department. I got jobs that were I was going to have, and then a phone call was made, and they weren't there. But um, she was pissed off because I didn't support her, and she needed another ally Thomas Lukasik was not going to be her soulmate. But um, I enjoyed immensely working with her on the human rights bill. I would never have been able to do it because they would never have trusted me to do it, but she was a justice minister. She had suggested our, our head of the Human Rights Commission, and she designated somebody to work with us. And she knew that I knew this file from my days in the PMO, and we would go through it. So it worked for both of us. It helped us move everything along. Um, she wanted to be queen, and I didn't want to be king. And she would do things that I knew I couldn't stomach. I, I knew I was close to the, to, the, to the premier's security. And I know that, you know, minutes after, it's don't speak until spoken to. I know of staff members and friends of mine that were tormented, and that's just not right. That'll come back to haunt you, and the media didn't know about it. When the media called, you know, a couple of days before the resignation, they were all shocked because they couldn't believe this about the spike Sky Palace and the infamous event at, 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 um, at worst and how that all changed and how they felt they were taken in. And I said, well, that's too bad for you. If you did your job and you actually looked, you might have seen what was obvious to a lot of people. But I left. Nobody asked me why, except Len Weber. And I told them. Nobody else asked why. Cautionary tale, because I told them she was going to screw up and masterfully just watch. And she did.
And usually there are signs um, there. It does seem like the longer you're in politics, you can have lifelong relationships or you can have, they can, you know, the relationships can get damaged. Yeah, they can. I think, you know, 99% of my relationships, um, and that's including people on the other side of the aisle. When I grew up in Ontario, even though I was a conservative, 60% of my friends were, were liberal. Um, and I didn't, you know, I, I, I kept, that's a social club you choose, that's fine. You know, you're at the Petroleum Club and you're at the, some other club. What difference does it matter, really, in the end of the day? And friends are friends. And um, I've, I've had many for, for life and, and, and we'll have some. Some of those were in the legislature and some of those aren't. And some of those were people that were on the other side of the aisle that I never thought would have better friendships than I did with some of my own caucus members. However this might sound, but would you do it all again? The staffing, the, the door knocking, the, you know, it's been a big part of your life. Do, any regrets? No of regrets it? other than, um, you know, I probably worked too hard and burnt myself out and robbed my kids of some time. But I had an opportunity as a, a member of the legislature and a member of cabinet who happened to be black to do something where very, very few people in the country ever got to do. So I became better from it. Um, all the opportunities that I have now in business are a result of exposure and, and being forced out of my comfort zone that I would never have done if I had been in, hadn't been in politics. So no, I, I, um, it was time for me to leave when I did. I have a healthy appreciation and respect for the, the position in government, but I don't long for it. Um, but um, again, I don't have uh, any negative feelings towards it or those people involved. It just wasn't for me. And now your son is working. Yeah, well, on it. I told him when he he told me when he's sixteen. He says, "Dad, I know you don't want to hear this, but I'm going to be involved, and I have been involved." And I said, "I know." And I said, "I just know the pratfalls of it, but I know I wasn't going to listen to anybody. I'm not going to kill your dream, so just be careful. And I'll tell you what to look out for. Got a question about a person? I'll let you know. But other than that, you're on your own." You got to be. That's the only way you can make it in politics. Thank you for listening to part two of my conversation with former Alberta Culture Minister Lindsay Blackett. Future episodes will include conversations with former NDP leader Ray Martin, former Minister of Finance Lyle Oberg, former MLA and Edmonton City Councillor Karen Lee Bavici as well as former Health and Finance Minister Iris Evans.